0: From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, Boris Malyugin and Adi Abulafia at ASCRS 2017.
1: He made his modification, uh, which he called Sputnik, and it was really like Sputnik because this is a circle optic connected with antennas and uh, loops, and uh, very, very popular not only in Russia but uh, all over the world. First, this
0: want to learn about macro MIPS, and running an excellent and efficient ophthalmology practice? You'll love iTalks Radio. The official podcast of the American Society of Ophthalmic Administrators.
1: Let's get right down to the basics of MACRA. For those of you who are not familiar with this law, what is MACRA?
0: MACRA does stand for the Medicare Access and CHIP Reauthorization Act. iTalks Radio brings to ASCRS members, ASOA members, and even non members practical information on human resources, government regulatory compliance, middle management, and productivity. Indulge at italksradio.org. That's E Y E T A L K S radio.org. Italks Radio, the Yang to My Yin. I had the opportunity to interview a number of people advancing the forefront of ophthalmology during the 2017 ASCRS annual meeting in Los Angeles edited versions of these interviews are presented on the iworld replay website as brief videos i'm going to present some of my favorite interviews over a number of podcasts today we hear from boris Maljugin on pupil fixation devices, and Adi Abelafia on residual refractive errors with TORIC IOLs. I'm here with Boris Malyugin. Boris, you uh, gave a wonderful, wonderful talk, the Binkhorst lecture um, on surgery in the context of the small pupil, and I can't thank Boris, and I know that I speak for absolutely everybody, I can't think of anyone, any one person who has really changed this field uh, more than than, uh, you. Having said that, the the eponymous ring uh, of uh, yours um, did not appear in a vacuum. We had to deal with small pupils during cataract surgery before the time of the uh, ring, uh, before the time of um, the modern surgical tools that we use now. Can you sort of set the stage for me uh, of how small pupils were dealt with in the past? Um,
1: of course, uh, the, the issue of small pupils is the issue that raised uh, long in the history of uh, cataract surgery. And, uh, of course, we, we've had some surgical uh, approaches including complete iridectomy at some point uh, in 18th and 19th century uh, because uh, there was not enough uh, pharmacological agents to help the surgeons doing that. Uh, then, uh, after uh, the Um, modern cataract surgery arrived, so then the surgeon starts using uh, different approaches, starting from uh, dissecting uh, posterior sinechia, using scissors to perform partial uh, sphincterotomy, um, multiple cuts help to enlarge the pupil. Stretching the pupil was quite helpful, and still uh, can be helpful in, in some cases, as well as uh, removing pupillary membrane or peripupillary membrane, uh, which is attached to the uh, edge of the uh, edge of the pupil. And finally, uh, the um, arrival of Iris Hooks uh, was a very good uh, time, uh, because that that was first introduced for vitreoretinal surgery by uh, Dr. Uh, DeJuan. And followed by that, there were uh, several rings um, that also have to be mentioned, uh, because the concept of ring is very attractive, uh, by the way, because we can hold the pupil round rather than square when uh, which we have with uh, the hooks and keep it in the anatomical plane rather than lifting it off that's that's correct That's correct, and also we can protect the iris margin Mm -hmm. by uh, covering it with the with the the ring. Uh, So, and that's why uh, the ring was. um, uh, There were different variations of the of these rings, but none of them were uh, very successful. um, When uh, I decided to design the ring, uh, which is bearing my name, and uh, I really. Uh, appreciate that people all over the world are using that in uh, different surgical um, complicated cases uh, that that is a great privilege of having that yeah
0: well it's a, a wonderful tool now since the development of of your ring or should i say your ring version 1.0 there are uh, a number of uh, new rings that have coming uh, that have come out that are modifications. Perhaps you want to speak about. It. In fact, one of the new rings that's a modification is a new ring of
1: yours. Oh yeah, that's correct. So we are now with the second version, uh, which is uh, made of five zero polypropylene rather than uh, four zero, be- uh, and the device become thinner. Uh, more gentle, more elastic and uh, um, less traumatic for the iris uh, um, and it's even easier to insert and to remove and also um, it's possible to insert it through the 2.0 millimeter incisions which is a good advantage because we are now going to the era of smaller and smaller incisions uh, which is a modern trend in cataract surgery. So,
0: uh, it, it just from a from a practical standpoint, from 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 my standpoint, I've used plenty of uh, the the four o proline uh, uh, rings of yours. I have not used. Uh, the uh, five yet some of my colleagues have what are the, the the special things that I want to know, and what are the cases that I may still want to use the the, the, the bulkier firmer ring?
1: I think uh, both of them will stay, and you correctly pointed it out, so I, I do think that there are some irises that are simply very rigid and because of inflammation, because of fibrotic. Uh, because of fibrosis and the tissue become very very stiff, and that in these cases I believe you should consider using uh, the older version and uh, classic version of the ring because you you need to really stretch the, sure. the pupil and uh, you need sometimes even a little bit tear the uh, sphincter because it's fibrotic uh, circle yeah uh, which you have to break otherwise you will not be able to uh, to open the pupil so and i do recommend using the uh, thinner version the second one generation for intraoperative floppy iris syndrome uh, because the iris is very elastic there and it's uh, gentle and that's why it works very well in specifically in these cases and of course, um, I do like use the newer version with uh, flex because I can insert it uh, a bit prior to the procedure and uh, expand the pupil. And I want to keep my incision as small as possible in these cases.
0: Boris, we 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 discussed where the ring came from from a a clinical standpoint, from a need standpoint. But there's a historical standpoint, a connection with you that's. Interesting in the sense that you are uh, uh, practicing within the Fyodorov Institute and uh, Fyodorov himself was interested in attaching things uh, to, the, to the iris too.
1: He was uh, actually following uh, Binkhorst's idea of using uh, iris clips lens and he made his modification uh, uh, which he called Sputnik and it was really like Sputnik because this is a circle optic connected with antennas and uh, loops and it was attached to the pupil and uh, very, very popular not only in Russia but uh, all over the world at some time point. And then following that line, so I'm attaching something to the pupil as well. So uh, that's um, a very interesting historical you know, anecdote uh, to follow.
0: Boris, this is wonderful, wonderful stuff. It was a wonderful lecture. Uh, I want to thank you very much for bringing these, these topics to us, for creating these devices that I use all, all the time, that we all use all the time. And as always, for being so very generous with your time with us today. Thank you. I'm here with Adi Abelafia. Adi, you gave a wonderful talk, and an interesting subject, one that really hits home for uh, me. Adi, I'll tell you. I had a, 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 a patient. I did I have all the fancy toys. I did all the measurements. It was, you know, for a torque lens. Everything lined up. I did intraoperative aberrometry. It agreed with my I.L. well Everything added up. And postoperatively, there was an astigmatic Refractive surprise! How the hell did that happen? So,
2: uh, Toric IOLs are becoming the standard of care for patients um, who undergo cataract surgery and have corneal, astigmati- um, corneal astigmatism. However, the results following their implantation, as you said, are not always uh, predictable. So. Uh, corneal astigmatism measurements, the method of calculations, and surgically induced astigmatism—all of them can be factors that might contribute to unexpected residual astigmatism.
0: So let, let's 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 sort of break this down. Let's deal with mm-hmm. uh, with with the, with the first part. Yeah.
2: Okay. So uh, when we do our corneal um, astigmatism measurements, uh, it is very important uh, to be critical when evaluating them and not to cruise just in automatic pilot mode. So, and you can use uh, checklists. You, you have such checklists on the Warren Hills website. So this is important. And then it is important to look at the measurements and to be uh, to, to verify that we are dealing with a symmetrical and regular astigmatism. And then uh, it is advisable to follow Warren Hill's methodology and to use primary and secondary supporting instruments to validate your steep meridian and then to follow the same process for the power difference between the meridians and make sure that our primary device is aligned with our validated steep meridian.
0: And, and so that, that, that's, that's well and good to uh, say. What happens if uh, the two don't correspond? Let's say that um, the astigmatic axis or the astigmatic magnitude with the automated keratometry from your optical biometer don't align with the topography.
2: Well, I mean, when you look at the topography, you know where the stick axis is. And uh, if it's a regular and symmetrical astigmatism, you have to make sure that your keratometry is measuring at the same place. And if not, uh, you should uh, go back to square one and try to, to figure out what went wrong and I would go and do the measurements once again and, and try to see if, it's, if, if, if it repeats or not. So,
0: so And let's deal with the, with, the, with the second part.
2: Well, the second part is the methods of calculation. So uh, today all of us know that uh, standard keratometry and topography machines tend to yield inaccurate results in assessing the net corneal stigmatic power. So what they do, they measure the anterior cornea, and they assume that there is a fixed ratio between the anterior and the posterior coronal curvature which is not the case so uh, it has been now five years since Doug Koch had reminded us the role of the posterior corneal astigmatism in toric calculations and uh, what he did, I mean uh, Doug and his group um, evaluated the posterior cornea in a large uh, group of patients and they found out that uh, the majority of the c- uh, posterior corneas were steep along the vertical meridian so what does it mean? I mean, if you have a steep posterior cornea on the vertical meridian, and we know that the posterior cornea is a negative lens. Correct. So what it does, it actually creates a net plus power effect on the horizontal meridian and uh, actually induces against the rule a which will a- add to your uh, calculation. So um, what they did, they published the Baylor nomogram based on their findings, and this was the first step solution to address this problem. Now, since then, a great deal of work has been done to refine our understanding of the posterior corneal astigmatism and, and to see how best is to incorporate that into our toric calculation. So, two main approaches have been taken. One is to use mathematical models, like the Toric calculator Correct. and the Abulafia koch formula. Now, these methods, what they do, they um, use anterior corneal-based measurements to calculate an estimated net corneal astigmatism. Mm-hmm now the second approach which should be the ultimate goal is direct measurements of the posterior cornea and um, ideally this should be done with every calculations but as we know till today till today um, they are slightly inferior to the best mathematical models and until we'll find a better way to measure the posterior cornea the mathematical models are still uh, serves as holds up besides
0: which most ophthalmologists in clinical practice don't have a direct means to measure the curvature of the posterior cornea yes so
2: so uh, as for today it's it's the best option that
0: there is around so so great. So we've dealt with number one, number two. two. We still have number three. Yeah.
2: So well, number three, uh, the surgically induced astigmatism is a highly controversial issue, and I actually, I want to um, share with you some please, of my thoughts on, on this uh, topic. So, uh, most of us are using just point five diopters for our surgically induced astigmatism, uh, mainly because we just ha- have been told to do so. Um, but. I, I, we are not sure if this is the the proper value. Maybe it sh- should be 0.25, maybe 0.1 diopters, or maybe we should uh, calculate our personal SIA like we were told to do so in the past. Mm-hmm. Now, um, there there are several issues with the, with the SIA calculation. So the first thing is that we, we have to remember that um, that the astigmatism is a vector which has both magnitude and direction, and we were doing our SIA calculation wrong. So what we were doing in the past. In the traditional way in calculating our SIA was actually um, calculating properly the individual SIA using proper vector math for each individual I. But for our mean value, we were taking only the magnitudes, ignoring the meridians. So in this way, you get actually a mean absolute value rather than the mean vector value, which is the proper way to do uh, vector math. Sure. And what we found out analyzing large databases by uh, Warren Hill, that uh, it seems like um, if you do the SIA in the uh, old-fashioned way, it was around 0.5, 0.4, but the centroid value is around 0.1 diopter, and this would give you um, the best prediction errors. I mean, on average, there is still a big variance in that. So uh, the second problem with the SIAs is the um, low repeatability of our measuring devices for this exercise. And the third thing is that there is a variability uh, which is incision dependent and cornea dependent. And the last thing is that um, the timing in which we measure uh, the cornea after the surgery. Most of us are just using it one month following surgery, but we know from some of the FDA trials that it's best to do so after three months. So... These are the problems, and and I think that today the best uh, thing to do is to use around 0.1 diopters. But we still have to study this issue and and to for getting better understanding.
0: So if if it's a 0.1 centroid value, yeah, can can we just use zero? I mean, at that point, well, I I I will share that with you.
2: I'm 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 personally putting a zero, but 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 on average, right? And if you if you want to take it from the mathematical point of view. Point one is the most proper number to yeah. do. To Plus, use. I
0: mean, there there are in in addition to the to the vector math, um, there are also studies that show that depending upon the clock hour of the incision, that the, that the that the SIA can uh, vary.
2: Yes, I'm I'm aware of that, but you have to remember that I'm I'm not sure if there is any proper study around mm-hmm. that really measured the um, uh, the SIA right because you have to be. Uh, doing that in the same location right in order in order to get it right. And uh you remember that you have cyclotorsion correct as well. And how many of us uh mark the patients before yeah, surgery. If, if they're not toric, yeah. yeah. If they're not toric and yeah. and just to get our SIA right. Yeah. So
0: No no the, the these are these are great points. Um, it, it's complicated. I mean it, it sounds like like it should be something that's very, very straightforward. Um, but it's um, it's not. Yeah it's, yeah, it's just not. Yeah, I completely um, agree with
2: you on that. So,
0: Adi, I want to, to thank you. Usually, I, I thank people for making a very complicated subject simple. I guess I'm going to thank you for making a very simple subject very complicated. Uh, but no, I mean, it's, it's, these are things that bear serious thought because they are things that impact the results that we get with the mm-hmm. with the patients. Adi, I want to thank you very much for being so very generous with your time with us today. Okay. Okay, and thank you for having me here. Boris Malyugin is Professor of Ophthalmology in the Department of Cataract and Implant Surgery and Deputy Director General of the S. Fyodorov Eye Microsurgery State Institution in Moscow, Russia. Adi is Acting Deputy Head of the Ophthalmology Department at the Asaf Harofa Medical Center in Tsarifin, Israel. Ask questions of Dr. Malyukin, Dr. Abulafia, or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at As seen from here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.